You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So, on a heavier note, I, I do want to start off my introduction with this. I want to talk about chemotherapy for a second. Um, it is brutal. And if any of you have, um, if you, any of you know people who have had cancer uh, as friend or family, you understand uh, what this modern medicine does. It is, is horrible to endure. And this treatment, it essentially it intentionally kills cells in our own bodies in an attempt to rid us of the cancer that threatens our lives. And it's done with the hope that the healthy cells survive and that they would rejuvenate, restoring the body back to health. That's the idea, right? Now, why, why that heavy introduction? Well, the thing is, when I read this passage, I can't help but think of it as a kind of spiritual chemotherapy that's going on here, okay? Spiritual chemotherapy. Because when you read the passage, there's a tendency that we might fall prey to the false doctrine or false assurance of salvation. Like, when you read it, you might think, okay, I'm okay. I'm okay here. That there's this false hope of a false faith. And so when you cling to that kind of falsity, right, that falsehood of, am I really saved? Is this really what's going on? What happens is this. It'll grow like cancer in our souls. But I believe by God's grace, He has given us a treatment today. And so I pray that this that we would let the strong medicine sweep through our hearts, sweep, sweep through our minds, sweep through our souls, so that we might have the confidence that the faith is of God, that this faith that comes from God will grow even stronger than before. That if we believe that our faith comes from the Lord, that it will, it will stand firm. You believe that? But if your faith comes from yourself, it's going to shake. You guys follow me? All right? So I got a couple of points today I want to make. And under those points, I have a couple of thoughts I want to make too. So let's dig in. My first point is this. We can have it all, but still miss the kingdom of God. Okay? We can have it all, but still miss the kingdom of God. We're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. Okay, so Nicodemus, I think he gets a pretty bad rap in today's modern Christian world, because typically we picture this guy who's maybe a, a bit girthy, a bit heavy, slimy, this cowardly guy who's kind of sneaking around in the middle of the night to ask these secret questions to Jesus. But like we normally do, I think whenever we read of characters in the Bible, it is important for us to put ourselves in their shoes. And so I believe Nicodemus was a man, a person, just like you and I, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, Nicodemus is like you. Actually, I would even contend that he is someone just like you and I wished we could be, but could never actually measure up to. So this, what makes this passage so powerful is this, is that Nicodemus had a life that was really just pretty excellent. He had his life together, so to speak. This is a guy who kept his head on straight. He worked hard at school. He got good grades. He made the dean's list. He interned at the top five firm. He makes good money, married, had good kids, so on and so forth. This guy, he had it all. Good guy. He had it all. And yet, Jesus says, 
he will not even see the kingdom of God. So what did Nicodemus have? Well, he had wealth, okay? It appears from outside biblical sources that Nicodemus was from one of the most prominent families in Israel. He was a Jewish aristocrat. Now, we also know that from Scripture, three years later, he personally bought spices to embalm the body of Jesus. It was about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which, by the way, only the super wealthy could possibly afford. So he had money, and he had lots of it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had many times in my life, and this is me personally, many times I've thought, if only I had this much money, I'd be all right. You feel me? If only I could earn this much more, life would be a little bit better. If I could make this much, life would just be a bit easier. I'm sure we've all thought that. In fact, many of us are thinking that right now. Because all the bills are starting to stack up, right? All the bills are starting to stack up. All the expenses are increasing. And as we become more aware of what's around us and what's available and all the stuff that we want, we begin to fantasize about wealth, about making more, about maybe even going back to school so that we could make more money later on. You see, here's the thing. Wealth is fine. It's good. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing sinful about wealth. Nothing wrong with it. But here from this passage, we know that Nicodemus, he had plenty of it. He had it all. He had it all. And yet, he still fell short of God's kingdom. Now, here's the thing. I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I think many of us, if not all of us, know money won't save us. Pastor David, we've heard this a million times before. I get it. Money's not going to save us. But I think one thing that we do get mixed up with is the idea that we need money to do anything of spiritual and kingdom significance, and that's not true. God can, and he has, and he will use those who are not in the 1% of finance. He will use everyone and anyone to do his work. Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter. For his entire ministry, Jesus was pretty much homeless. We have to stop assuming that once our debt is paid off, or once we saved up enough money, or once we can make a little bit more, that that is when we'll be available for God's kingdom. No, no, no. God, he does not need our money because all money belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. You know, God, he wanted, God wanted this church to be Shining Stars Church. You know that? He wanted this church to be a place where the gospel is preached. He wanted this church to be one where they would reach out to the community. He wanted this church to be one where they would praise and glorify, glorify God in, in the many ways that we do. And so he allowed us to get this church for a third of the value. A third of the value. What if when we were looking for a church 16, 17 years ago, and we come across this church before it was called Shining Star, Shining Star it was called National Gardens Baptist Church. And we come across this church and we say, hello, Pastor Harry. This was, that was the previous pastor. How much for this church? And he says $3.9 million. And we go, whoa, a bit too much. We'll look elsewhere. No. Instead, what did we do? We prayed in accordance to God's will because we knew that the Lord was leading us somewhere. We prayed in faith, trusting in him. And by God's grace, he gave this church to us. 
we need to stop using our wealth or lack thereof as a reason for us not advancing towards God's kingdom. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Right? Some of us say, I need to pursue something to do God's work. Some people say, I don't have enough to do God's work. God says, ah, oh, you got your body, don't you? You got what you got. I want to use that. Jesus says even in Luke chapter 21 that the widow's offering of two small copper coins has done more for God's kingdom than all these people who have given gifts from their wealth, out of their wealth. Folks, don't lose sight of God's kingdom. If money, making money is your sole focus, you will lose sight of something of infinite worth. You'll lose the things of God. You'll fall away from fellowship with him. You'll lose sight of his people. You'll lose sight of his agenda. So be generous Generous with what you have, be a cheerful giver, but know that making money is not your life's purpose and it will not get you into the kingdom of God. Can I, can I hear an amen? Okay? But not only was he wealthy, Nicodemus was also a man of power and prominence. He was super rich, but he was also super powerful. He was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin. Now the thing is this, we don't have anything today like that. So I'm going to explain what it is. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men who had the power of the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. All three in one. No checks and balances here. Their power was not only civil government, but was also about ruling the church. In other words, they were in charge of the religious life of the entire nation. And so yet, even with all that power, Nicodemus still fell short of God's kingdom. And you know what's interesting? The more I do ministry, the more I realize how little influence I have and how much more influence you all have. What I mean by that is this. I understand my role. I know that my role is to set an example of faith and of character. My job is to teach the word of God and, it's supposed to, and I'm supposed to counsel in the word of God. But my observation is that the way many of us are shaped has a lot less to do with me up here and a lot more to do with you all down there and who you've surrounded yourself with. Do you guys get what I'm saying? There are life groups in your life that are influential. There are people that you hang out with outside of this church that are influential. We think that to make any type of significant impact or influence upon one another, that you have to be a position of authority, a position of power, like a CEO or a teacher or a coach, or in my case, a pastor, but that's not true. You see, when I was little, younger, in high school, I played basketball. And as great of a leader as my coach was, it was actually my teammates who really helped me out. It was my teammates who gave me a hand when I fell. It was my teammates who put their arms around me when I missed a winning shot. It was the people around me who shaped me. Power and prominence is useful. God can do amazing and wonderful things through you if you're in a position like that of Nicodemus. But if that's your sole focus, just wanting to climb the corporate ladder or become an authority figure, then you will lose sight of God's power and of God's prominence. You will lose sight of God's kingdom. Because wherever you are in life, even as an entry-level worker at your firm or as a coffee-getting intern or temp, know this, we all possess influence. Every single one of us. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm influenced by you. It's so true. 
And God, he wants you to make an impact for his kingdom now, not later. Now, not later. Not when you got your degree. Not when you can finally, not when you're married and have, you know, parental experience or as a husband, as a father or whatever. Right now, the Lord is calling you to make an impact upon his kingdom. So Nicodemus, he had it all. He had power. He had prominence. And yet he still didn't understand what it meant to be in the kingdom of God. So not only was he wealthy and powerful, Nicodemus was also highly educated. So the fact that he was a Pharisee guarantees that he was a scholar. Now, even though he was Jewish, he had a Greek name, which meant that he got the best education because only the most prominent Jewish families were able to send their children to uh, areas where they can learn Greek philosophy and Greek culture and Greek language. But not only that, in verse 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. Not just one of the teachers, not just a teacher, not just one of the 70. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. So evidently, Nicodemus was the most prominent teacher of his day. Okay, so in America, as well as in Korea, and I'm sure many other nations too, we tend to believe that education is the key to everything. It's everywhere. In fact, did you know that the D.C., Maryland, uh, Northern Virginia... It's the second most educated city in the U.S., second to Ann Arbor, Michigan, which barely has 100,000 residents to our 6.1 million, but I'm not counting. So education is the key for us here. You know, if you ever go to Korea, know this. Kids go to school for school in Korea. If you don't know what I'm talking about, later on, Google it. It's ridiculous. So we believe that if we just get a good education, we'll be fine. We'll have opportunities. We can do this and we can do that. Look, we'll never even come close to the academic credentials that Nicodemus had. And yet, here we have the great scholar, the teacher of Israel, the most prominent teacher, and yet he still falls short of the kingdom of God. I want you to start piecing this together. I have known friends with just a high school degree, and who are living a passionate life for God's kingdom, advancing God's kingdom so faithfully and so well. And I know these guys who are doing more for God's kingdom than, let's say, some of my seminarian friends who think the kingdom of God is only about knowing theology. Don't let your lack of education or your pursuit of education get in the way of God's leading. Don't lose sight of his kingdom. Amen? So not only was he wealthy, not only was he prominent, and not only was he educated, he was also a really good guy. He was morally upright. As a Pharisee, he had to take a vow before witnesses that he would spend his entire life observing every detail of the biblical law. He believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that he believed that every word of the Bible was God's word, and so he was committed to obeying every single word of it. Look, we all probably know some people around church who are super nice, and when they worship, they put their hands up, and they look super holy and super spiritual and all this stuff, but they're also known for their unethical business practices. Maybe for you, maybe you're a student, and you love the Lord. You tell me, I love Jesus. God, uh, Pastor, how can you disciple me? How can you lead me and all this stuff? But you know what? As a student, you're cheating. You're cheating. 
Maybe as a spouse, you're saying, I want to really be a, a, a pillar here, a, a foundation at this church and, and help the singles and, and their, and their growth and, and their pursuit of what they want in marriage and really disciple them and all this stuff. But then there's marital unfaithfulness. But Nicodemus, he was not like that. He was actually a pretty awesome guy. He was morally upright. He wasn't perfect, but he was pretty darn close. He was a really good guy. And yet we know that even that was not good enough for God's kingdom. So here's the thing. He was wealthy. He was prominent. He was educated. And he was just morally outstanding. And it says here that he even believed in Jesus. He believed in Nicodemus, believed in Jesus. Now this is a, distur- uh, this is a disturbing fact. I want you to all follow me, okay? If you look at chapter 2, verse 22... These people, they saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, and their response was they believed in him. Okay? So the thing about this is that in the original manuscript, there's no chapter break. So chapter 2 kind of goes into chapter 3 here. So you have to read chapter 2 to 3 kind of as a, in a continuous way. So a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and what does he say? In verse 2, tells us that Nicodemus was the group mentioned at the end of chapter 2, okay, that he was with the people who believed Jesus when he performed those miracles, that he was with the group that believed Jesus was an extraordinary teacher, that Nicodemus was with that group from chapter 2 that believed that Jesus was sent from God, that Nicodemus was also part of that group that believed that God was with Jesus and that Jesus was God-powered and believed. But in chapter 2, verse 24, it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. But then in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus specifically tells Nicodemus, who is part of that group, who witnessed all this stuff, and who said they believed, he says that you will not see the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? Here we have a man who is really amazing, He's so accomplished, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's educated, he's a good guy. He's morally upright, and it even appears that he believed in Jesus, this miracle worker, teacher, sent from God. And yet, after all that, Jesus says, you've missed the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Let me ask you all, does this shake your confidence? It should. Maybe we all knew that our education, wealth, and influence and character wasn't enough to save us. We got that. We understand that. But we acknowledge, but to acknowledge the fact that our Christian faith was not enough, how can that be? And this goes to my last point. Only Jesus gives us a whole new life. Now, this is a powerful moment recorded for us, okay? This giant of a man, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus, and it was probably undoubtedly to discuss some sort of fine theological points, right? But then Jesus looked at this amazing guy, this very successful guy, and morally upright, prestigious guy, and he says right to his face, Nicodemus, get a life. You see, even with all your credentials, you haven't even begun. Even with all that you've accomplished and all that you've ever learned, you haven't even scratched the surface. You see, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Three times Jesus says it to him. You must be born again. 
This is a huge statement because in one sentence, Jesus completely sweeps everything that that Nicodemus stood for. You see, everything that you've done, I swept away. Everything that you accomplished, it's gone. Everything you've given, take is done. You see, all that is not enough. And so Jesus demands Nicodemus to be what? Remade by the power of God. This is what Jesus is getting at. You got to be remade. Folks, this isn't Jesus turning Nicodemus away. This is Jesus saying, I want to start something new in you. I want to start something new in you. A radical rebirth. Now, I want you guys to think about what this new birth is, though. First of all, this being born again, it's humanly impossible. You can't reborn yourself. You didn't tell your parents, I'm ready. Right? Of course not. You couldn't born yourself the first time, and you can't born yourself again. Secondly, rebirth is a demonstration of God's Holy Spirit at work. You see in verses 5 to 7, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I said to you. You must be born again. By the way, the word water used in verse 5, I believe it to be a similar metaphor Jesus used in chapter 7, which means a spiritual cleansing, okay? So don't think that baptism saves you. It doesn't. That's not what we're talking about. Being born again is the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit inside a person to give spiritual life where there was none before. Being born again means to give us a new heart, a new spirit, and to make us a new creation in Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just about believing. Why? Because even the demons believe. Right? You all know that verse. It's not just about believing because even the demons believe. Prophet Ezekiel, he predicts this. He said that God will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. God will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. God will give you a new heart and he will put a new spirit in you. That's why Jesus came, to give us a brand new life. Not just a better life, but a not just a more comfortable life or a more satisfying life or a richer life or life without sorrows. No, those are not enough. He came to give us a new life. That's different. He didn't die on the cross to make you a better person. He died on the cross because you were dead to your sin and it was only by his dying to our sins that allowed us to be born again. And so there needs to be a distinction made between healthy and unhealthy faith, between a cancerous, malignant faith and a rejuvenated faith. And the treatment is made with the Word of God. You see, the Word of God tells us that there is believing in Jesus and there is believing in Jesus. In chapter 2, they believed in Jesus, but nothing happened. In chapter 3, verse 15, those who believed in him have, e- have eternal life. So what's the difference then? Well, let me tell you what, what malignant faith is. All right. <clears throat> With all that's happening right now in the conference finals, yeah, I got your attention now, right? Cavs versus Celtics, Warriors versus Rockets. The games are pretty exciting, I'd say, wouldn't you? For the first time, apparently, since the 1970s, both conferences are heading to a game seven. So if you've been been following the games, 
there's been this one overarching topic. And what was that? What is that? The constant debate of who's better, LeBron or Jordan. Constantly, right? Personally, I really don't care. Even though I was a contemporary of Jordan in his times and when he played, I'm actually a little bit more connected with the era of LeBron's legacy. Having said that, I want to say this. I believe in LeBron. I believe in LeBron James. I believe, as tired as he is and as horrible as his teammates are, that he can make a comeback and win it all. I have seen his capability, and I am wowed. He is a dazzling performer. I am a believer. I am a fan. But here's the weird thing. He doesn't know me. Shocking. He doesn't know me, and he doesn't, and him not knowing me doesn't really affect anything about my life. We have no relationship. I'm just a fan, and he's just some dude in Cleveland, right? Now, maybe you believe in Jesus that way because you're impressed by his teachings too. You're intrigued by his miracles. Maybe you've been even healed by him. Someone prayed for you. You respect him for his ethical system, for his philosophy in life. You find him to be an interesting topic of discussion. You're a fan, but that's about it. Because you come and see him once a week, see him once a week. You hear a message about him. You're a fan, but there's really no relationship. He doesn't really, he, he really doesn't affect your life that much because after the service, your life has nothing to do with him. If that's you, you're not in saving faith. Christ says, you must be born again. Being born again may start with a prayer, but it certainly doesn't end there. Too many people think that because sometime long ago, because we did that prayer's prayer, as soon as prayer, and we walked up the aisle, went to the altar and said, I have given my life, and you write a little note, and I give my life to the Lord Jesus, that we think that we are perfectly fine, that we're living a life in Christ, but that can't be further from the truth. The truest indication of a born-again life or a rebirth life or a transformed life is a transformed life. You guys hearing me? Okay. If your life is not transformed, and you say that you are transformed, either God's a liar or you are. It is by grace we have been saved. True, Ephesians 2. But once saved, the spiritual renewal becomes a life where the old is gone and the new has come. That does not mean that you won't struggle with sin. That does not mean that you'll be now perfect and happy and content and always blessed. But it will mean that there will be a change in what you believe, that there will be a change in how you live, and there will be a change in how you love. You feel me? And what you believe, how you live, and how you love. You'll grow closer in your faith and trust in Jesus through his word. That's the believing part, but it doesn't stop there. Because being born again means that you'll have new affections. You'll seek after righteousness rather than wickedness. You'll want the things of God rather than the things of the world. You'll want to walk in obedience rather than rebellion. And finally, a new created heart is one that has love not only for God, but has love for one another. Even your enemies even the ones that really, really irk you. 
including the family members who, don't want, who, want, who are just constantly badgering you or those friends who have distanced you. Why? Because you'll be loving them with a love that's founded on grace. The same grace that God extended to you to save you. Folks, for those who don't know Jesus today, today is the day you repent. Today is the day you give up your brokenness to his healing grace of forgiveness for our sins. The good news, okay, of Jesus is that he offers us more than a better life. Thank God he doesn't just give us a better life and says, that's it, guys. Uh-uh. He gives us a new life, a life where we will not face damning judgment, but we will face everlasting joy with the Heavenly Father. If you are a disciple of Christ, as in you are a follower of Jesus, you have surrendered your life to him, you have admitted and confessed your brokenness, and you have accepted his mercy and his grace and salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ, then here's what we got to do. You got to check your theology. In other words, are you growing in your knowledge and in your affection and your love for Jesus? Secondly, are you growing in your love for the commands of God? In other words, God's command, when he says, be pure, seek after wisdom, do this, that we don't say, how dare you restrict me? Instead, we say, God, that is good. I want that. And thirdly, are you growing in your love for one another? Is there actual desire and pursuit within this church to love the people, that guy or that girl sitting next to us? That co-worker or that family member that you're just like, I'm done with you. Is there an actual pursuit for their heart for them to know Christ? Let's all let go of every other hope we might have and trust our eternal souls only on Jesus. Only on Jesus, who is the only one who has died and rose again. Because you see, it is not in anything else that Nicodemus has. It is only in Jesus where we can truly have a new life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your words. It is piercing. It is not easy to take. But we thank you for your conviction. For that means that the Spirit is at work. Lead us, Lord, into a humble submission. And the fact that we can acknowledge, God, that your ways are right. Lord, we want to be able to just clearly say, God, have your way. Work in us. Change my heart because my heart is just filled with such maybe bitterness, such anger, is maybe it's filled with a lot of just divisiveness, whatever it is, any blockades, any unbelief, doubt, all that stuff. God, remove that. And I don't want to think that just because I, I've, I've done the right thing like Nicodemus, I've gone down the checklist of, of what it means to be a good person, a good family member, a good church member, that I am saved. No, as you see, that could be malignant. That could be cancerous faith when we think that somehow we're, that we've earned it. And when we simply say, I believe, but there's no indication of that belief demonstrated through our lives. There's nothing there. If you possess a life that is transformed, then your life ought to be transformed. 
If you hold your hands up and say, yes, Lord, my calling is to love people, but yet there's nothing but anger and bitterness and vitriol spewing from your mouth, then you got to check yourself. If you say that you're forgiven, that you receive the great forgiveness of God through the, through the sacrifice of Jesus, yet you're so unwilling to forgive the person who hurts you or offends you, then folks, we've got we to gotta really check our hearts. What do you believe? How do you live? And how will you love? Let's pray.